You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Right, before you sit, uh, we have Redemption Hill Kids today. So if it serves you families, we have Redemption Hill Kids for two to four-year-olds and then also five to nine. And they'll be talking about, our five to nine-year-olds will be talking about prayer. Specifically, what is prayer? And actually, they'll be spending several weeks focusing on prayer, which is, which is fantastic. So here's the question, what is prayer? And then with me, here's the answer from our confession of faith. Prayer with thanksgiving is one part of worship and is required of all men by God. But so it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to His will. It is to be made in understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. Fantastic. You may be seated. Thank you, those who are serving our kids in Redemption Hill, kids. Well, Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Yeah, we're real excited. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you. There's still a number of families I know that are, that are out sick, so continue to pray for those families, but it's good to see you all this morning. On Thursday afternoon, I did not know what I was going to preach. That is extremely unusual for me. I usually know months and months in advance what's going on, what's coming down the, you know, down the pike. I was planning on getting back into the Sermon on the Mount uh, sermon series, right? We got to finish that up. But as I was preparing for the next message in the Sermon on the Mount, it was like, for whatever reason, some days are like this, it was like pounding my head against the wall. It's like, why, oh Lord, cannot, can I not put together a sermon? And I don't know how to explain it, other than perhaps... It was the Spirit trying to communicate something to me. Or incompetence. That could work too. I mean, for being fair. So I asked a few guys to pray for me. Thank you for those who did pray for me. And it seemed right to preach the message that I was going to preach last week. Um, that I was going to table it. Basically, I'll get to that you know, sometime down the road. So today's sermon is not a part of a sermon series, which you are accustomed to, but it is a topic that I've put a lot of thought into the last several months. So before I pray and begin, I have a few qualifications to help set the expectations of this sermon. And if you know me, I'm not big into qualifying things because we could be doing this all day and be here all day. But for today, I'm going to make several qualifications. First, This is the type of sermon that you have to listen all the way through. If you stop in the middle and you miss the end, you're not going to be able to connect dots. You may even get frustrated with me, frankly. So you got to listen all the way through. So I encourage you to hang with me from beginning to end. Second, I hope this sermon has a prophetic and pastoral tone. What do I mean by prophetic and pastoral? 
You will not hear from me, thus saith the Lord, unless I'm directly quoting Scripture. But there are times when leaders and pastors certainly need to have a prophetic voice to help the church see what's going on in the present and perhaps the future. I was thinking about why pastors need to have a prophetic voice from time to time, right? I was kind of pondering that question last week. And a couple thoughts came to mind. You're all very intelligent people. You're all smart. When I sit down with some of you and you explain your vocation, I'm blown away by what you do. There are gifts and skills in this church that I don't have. With this said, one of the roles of a pastor is to pay close attention to the time and moment in which the church exists. Like, I need to do that for you. Pastors preach the gospel, but also help the church apply the gospel when you go to work, because that is set within a context, a culture. When you go to school, when you go home, as you parent kids. And as the Bob, great prophetic prophet Bob Dylan states, the times they are a changing. The times are changing. Therefore, pastors who pay close attention and are willing to have a prophetic voice help the church navigate change. So that's what I mean when I say the sermon hopefully has a prophetic tone. I also want to have a pastoral tone. I try to have that every time I get up here and preach, certainly, but I'm highlighting it this morning for a reason. This morning, I'm going to give you a lot to think about. I'm guessing. I might make a few statements that you'll hear for the first time. And my intentions are to help, to equip, and to guide you through life as a Christian. A good shepherd helps sheep to see the pasture and helps the sheep navigate the topography of that pasture. So as a pastor, I want to care for you in the moment and to prepare you for tomorrow. For example, I will make a few comments about the change in the sexual ethics in America. Whatever it is I say is not meant to antagonize at all, at all. I want to help you think well about what it means to be a Christian who holds to a sexual ethic that is frankly repudiated by our culture. When we talk about the times they are changing, that has certainly changed. Now, I mentioned the dramatic change in the sexual ethics in America because sexual ethics is the engine that drives the bus in a negative world. And I'm going to explain that here in a moment. I was talking to Rob Lane, Pastor Rob, before um, church, and I was just confessing to him, I don't, I don't know how this is going to land on people. But what I did say to him is, younger generations are actually going get to the, get this a lot better than some of us older folks. Because they're confronted with it every single day. The changes that I'm talking about, they're confronted with it when they go play sports. 
perhaps when they go to school. Way more than we are. I think that's really true. So if you're a parent, if you're a student, pay close attention. I have one last point to make. Um, you have the freedom to disagree with me. <laughs> I've say, I say that from time to time, and I do mean it. I really do. Uh, yes, I want to persuade you, but I am not the end all. At the end of the day, we need to be persuaded by God's word, right? This is where we go. If you come up to me afterwards and you're like, well, Pastor Sean, what about here? I say, thank God that you have that kind of godly ambition <laughs> to pull out your Bible and say, Pastor Sean, what, what about here? I, I, I want to, um, we want to cultivate that in our church going back to God's word. So those are my qualifications. Now let me pray. Ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. And as we, our kids are learning about prayer this morning, I confess in prayer my great need for your help this morning. Lord, my deepest desire is to be faithful to you and helpful and caring for these precious saints in front of me this morning. I cannot do this in my own strength, but I need your help. Lord, as we talk about some weighty topics, Lord, we trust that the Spirit is indeed at work. The Spirit is at work shaping minds and hearts in conformity to Christ. Pray this in Christ's name. In the last couple months, I've read articles and listened to a few lectures by this guy named um, Aaron Wren. Most of you have never heard of Aaron Wren. He's not a trained pastor. He's not a trained theologian. He's actually in the marketplace. He thinks well, though, about the intersection of Christianity and culture. In my view, Wren has a balanced and prophetic voice about the state of Christianity in 21st century America. Recently, Wren put forward an idea that I tend to agree with. Here's the, like, the big idea. Christianity in America has existed in different cultural contexts since its founding 245 years ago. For a long time, Christianity, this is Wren, lived in a positive world. And then culture slipped into a neutral world. In the neutral world, the culture, cultural ethos differed in how it viewed Christianity. And finally, the culture has moved into a negative world. It's a positive, neutral, negative. Let me explain each world, and I'll use Wren's big idea to explain what it means to be devoted to Christ in a negative world. At the end of the day, that's what I'm going after. What does it mean to be devoted to Christ in our cultural time and moment? Colossians 2, verses 6 to 10, is going to be the anchor of this sermon that keeps us focused on Christ as we live for Christ in our culture. First, let me kind of put a frame around Colossians 2 here. A positive world means that the culture is friendly toward Christianity. People go to church and do business with people in the church, right? It's encouraged to be openly Christian at work. An example of a positive world in the United States was the blue laws that existed for so long, right? 
you, know, you know, might not know what blue law is, but and some states still have a few of these, but basically everything shuts down on Sunday, right? Um, why? You go to church. You are with family. You keep holy the Sabbath. That's why the blue laws in part existed. Wren says that for about 400 years, Christians existed in this positive world. Now, I've never heard this guy say that America was a Christian nation for 400 years, but certainly America was friendly toward Christianity, right? And then, according to Wren, in the 1960s, America slipped into, began to slip into a neutral world, began to slip. Wren uses the Kennedy assassination as the high point of divergence, where things began to diverge. I'll simply point out that in the, in the 1960s, we see the rise of the sexual revolution. It is during this time when we see the Christian sexual ethic challenged, mainly challenged by a bunch of straight men and women fornicating. I mean, that's just historical fact. For better or for worse, America was a very different place in 1955 than it was in 1965. While not yet a neutral world, you could see how the collective mind, American mind, was changing toward Christianity and what is taught in Scripture, right? Wren says the transition from a positive world to a neutral world was complete in 1994. In the neutral world, the culture was indifferent toward Christianity, right? Employers were less concerned with your church affiliation and who you slept with. Not everyone in your neighborhood went to church. Not everyone in the neighborhood was married with children. You might say the motto of the neutral world was just like, live and let live. You do you, I'll do me. The neutral world existed until, he says, about 2014. In 2014, and I would actually argue 2015, America dramatically changed. The event highlighting the change is the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges. What seemed ridiculous in the 1920s and early 21st centuries became a reality. Yeah, I'm going there. Sometimes bringing up the hard things is what pastoral ministry is all about. The ruling by the Supreme Court codified um, gay marriage in America. Now, regardless of what you think about the politics of Obergefell, it is undeniable that a massive change took place in America. Since 2014, 2015, Christians have existed in a culture that is increasingly viewing the Christian faith as a net negative. In early December, um, this December, I was sent a meme some guys like to send me memes because they're big meme guys, right? Uh, but this meme kind of sums up the change in the American ethos from the positive world to the negative world. I tried to find it, but, but to no avail, but I'll explain it to you. The meme shows a picture of New York City in the 1920s, and three massive skyscrapers had crosses lit up. You know, very, very Christian, right? Now, next to this uh, at the other side of this picture was New York City today. And what we don't see are crosses, what we see are Christmas trees. The crosses communicate a very clear religious statement. But so do the Christmas trees. 
One is Christian, one is secular. It's interesting, on 80, my, my kids pointed out that the Marriott had a Christmas tree lit up. Look pretty, don't get me wrong, but it's communicating something. Now, the religious statement, I think, now is now secular in America. And traces of Christian tradition in America have been replaced with secularism, pluralism, globalism, and other isms. Again, for better or for worse, I'm making an argument for or against these other isms. But I do dare you to find an institution in this country that views Christianity positively. Perhaps some, some institutions take a neutral approach. But for the most part, I think Christians exist in a negative world. You can't wear the pin of the cross on your shirt at work, but you're highly encouraged, if not persuaded, to wear other pins. For the first time in 400 years, the American ethos has become hostile to Christ and what Christ teaches. Listen, I'm not here to throw stones. I really am not. However, if true, I am, I am actually far from discouraged by our time and moment. I joyfully accept the time and place in which God has us. I am not here to argue that we need to reclaim what is lost. <laughs> I'm, not, I don't, I'm not interested in going back. I'm here to help you think well of what it means to be a follower of Christ in the here and in the now. That's what I'm here for. But more significantly, I'm here to remind you that no matter the winds that swirl around you, you, Christian, are rooted in Christ. I have every reason to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail over this earth until Jesus comes back. The gospel will move forward. So my goal is to help you think well about what it means to be devoted to Christ today and then tomorrow. And if in five years things change, guess what? In five years, my goal is the same. To tell you, to show you from Scripture that in that moment five years from now, you are still rooted in Christ. So I hope all that makes sense. It's a long introduction into our passage. Let's now look at the anchor, Colossians 2, to help us navigate our cultural moment. The Apostle Paul wrote letters for various purposes. In every letter, Paul was not naive to the cultural context of his recipients. Sometimes Paul wrote to encourage a local church. I find the book of Philippians to be an immensely encouraging book to read, while Paul is also addressing some people who are preaching with wrong motives. Sometimes Paul wrote to warn about false teachers in the church. Galatians was written for this reason. And sometimes Paul wrote to the local church to help them to be aware of the temptations that exist in and outside the church, which is why Paul wrote to the Colossians. After a beautiful explanation of the preeminence of Christ in Colossians 1, 
I encourage you to go back and read it today. Colossians 1 is beautiful. But after that, Paul addresses why he wrote. We read in Colossians 2.4. I say this, I say all this about Jesus in order that you, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Colossians 1, Paul is like, this is all about Christ. I'm going to persuade you. And by the way, do not be persuaded by others. The Apostle Paul knows that in the churches at Colossae, there's a spiritual battle taking place between ideas. Theological ideas. There's a battle taking place between truth and lies. Paul does not ignore the battle, and he does not want the church, the churches in Colossae, to be naive of the battle. He's like, do not be naive of what's going on around you guys. Be aware. So writing with a prophetic undercurrent for his day, Paul is saying that there is a biblical and Christian view of the world, and then there's everything else. We do not have evidence that Paul physically preached and taught in Colossae, but we do know he preached and taught in the regions, likely, likely his friend Epaphras founded the church. Epaphras and others had built a dam with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the problem is behind this dam, the water was building up and lies were being sown. And there was a temptation to compromise with the Colossian culture. So Paul has to write with authority. It's our version of saying, wake up. Wake up. Do not be naive, but be aware. I do not know if the same metrics were used that Colossae would be considered a negative world. I suppose the comparison doesn't matter. What I want you to see from today's passage is that the call by Christ is the same from one generation to the next. God's people are called to be devoted to Christ and to Christ alone no matter what. And that is our challenge in this moment in America right now. So many things are vying for your allegiance. And whom, students and adults, whom are you going to be devoted to at the end of the day? Here's a thought experiment for you. If the Apostle Paul were to write to the church in the Des Moines metro or the churches in America, what would you think he'd be compelled to say? Right? What temptations exist for us in the here and now? What theological errors would he warn us about? I don't know about you, but I think he would have a lot to say. Now, Paul is not going to write to the church in America, but we have everything we need right in front of us. Therefore, God's word encourages us to walk in Christ. We read in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The word walk does not convey what Paul is, doesn't convey everything Paul is trying to say. More pointedly, because we have received Christ, we're actually to live in him. God wants to ensure we know the object of our allegiance and devotion. 
It does not matter if we live in a positive, neutral, or negative world. Throughout any generation, throughout all generations, God calls his people to be devoted to Christ. The temptations and challenges are different from one generation to the next, but the call from God is the same. You can see in verse 7 that a picture is created about what it means to walk or live in Christ. You are to be rooted and built up in Christ. In the uh, iconic movie, The Lord of the Rings, no one's shocked that I'm quoting Lord of the Rings here. In the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's a moment when Saruman is coming up with a wicked plan to create a massive orc army. Looking at the force of the Ents, he commands one of the orcs to take down the trees to serve as fuel. In response, the orc says, the trees are strong, my lord. Their roots go deep. Christians are called by God to have roots that go deep to stave off the predations of Saruman, if I could say it like that. Not only do we need roots that run deep, but we need to be built up. Our growth in the gospel goes both ways. Without deep roots and without ongoing growth, your tree could be ripped out of the soil with enough wind and pressure. If Ren is right, and Christians now exist in a negative world, that it has, has never been more important to catechize our children with the truth of God's word. It has never been more important to be part of a church community that takes doctrine and fellowship seriously. It has never been more important to pray for our friends and our family members who do not know Christ. It has never been more important to share Christ with other people. It has never been more important to have roots that run, run deep and a trunk that grows high. How are we built up in the face of hostility? By receiving sound teaching. Here's all of verse 7. So walk in him, or live in Christ, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So receiving sound biblical doctrine, teaching, is essential to grow in your Christian faith. Like you, you don't need to grow to seminary to grow in biblical doctrine, to, to grow in your understanding of who God is. You don't need to go to seminary. You can. I went there. Some of you have graduate degrees in theology. But you don't need to do that. You don't need to take an online course to learn Greek. If you want to, cool. I, I think learning biblical languages is great, but you don't need to do that. Sound teaching is found in homes and local churches that will not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been helped. I'm not, I'm not suggesting good teaching cannot come through other means. That's not what I'm saying. I've been helped by pastors whom I've never met. But God has designed, designed, and ordained the natural home and the local church to be the primary vehicle to facilitate Christian growth. 
Now, I do hear from Christians from time to time, and it's not new, that all they need is the gospel or something kind of that effect. All, all that matters is that they are saved. And I do not want to dismiss the good and right intentions of people, but here is the flaw in this kind of mentality. Many people want a Savior. Not all people want a Lord. Why? A Savior rescues you. A Lord makes demands upon your life. A Christian, as Christians, we grow in our understanding of the gospel because the demands made by the gospel. As I've been thinking and praying about Redemption Hill in 2023, a twofold emphasis has come to mind. And a goal uh, of this twofold emphasis is for roots to go deep and for trees to grow high. First, Rob and I want to continue to ground and grow your faith in Christ by preaching God's word. And this is really important, preaching God's word by the grace of God. As a pastor, I can tell you, it can be really tempting to do this in my own effort. But what he and I need more than anything is the grace of God to teach you well and faithfully. We will continue to do our best to be faithful and to give it to you straight. No games, no smoke and mirrors. If you want your ears tickled, you can drive five five minutes and find that church. They're everywhere, but not here. A second emphasis is to equip you to exist and, yes, evangelize in this time and place. The good news goes forth through you. The church is a powerful tool for tremendous change between Monday and Saturday. And as the saying goes, we gather on Sunday and then we scatter scatter with the gospel in our hearts and on our lips, being transformed by the gospel, and we go out to our community, we go out to our workplaces, we go to school sharing Christ, especially in this negative world. Now, if I had to make a case that a different kind of negative world existed for Christians in Colossae, it would be from verse 8. Without question, the church in Colossae existed within a culture that was hostile to the gospel and the Christian faith. We read, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. To be fair, uh, scholars debate about what exactly this Colossian heresy is all about. The specifics are a little fuzzy. What specific philosophy is Paul referring to? Because not all philosophy is bad. What specific human traditions is Paul referring to? Because not all human traditions are bad. I'll offer some ideas, but, I, but the point is clear. The church exists within a culture that is peddling ideas contrary to Christ and contrary to the teachings of Christ. Many ideas from the culture attempt to take Christians captive. That's verse 8. Now, another interpretation of the Greek word for captive is actually control. I think we understand the idea of one person controlling another person. Like we should rightly call the police if a man is abusing another person through control. Right? I could also make the case that the feelings and emotions of person A can control person B. At present, emotional manipulation is running rampant in our culture. 
But you know what else has the power to control? This is Paul's point. Ideas. Notice that in Colossians, a person is not specifically pointed out by Paul. Now, there are times throughout Scripture where people connected with false ideas, with lies, are pointed out, but not right here. Untrue ideas are the enemy. Wrong ideas have the ability to control a person. But as Lucas points out, captive and the word control does not fully capture what Paul is attempting to say. And I quote, Someone is out to capture the Colossians' allegiance, ultimately who you're devoted to. But it is worse than that. The unusual word here speaks of a slave raider carrying off his victim, body and soul. These plausible teachers may say that they have come to bring Christians new liberties, but, says Paul in effect, don't go near them if you value your spiritual freedom. In the negative world, you're not asked to be indifferent. In the negative world, you're not asked to be tolerant. Christians were asked to be indifferent and tolerant on certain social issues in the neutral world. In the neutral world, the mentality of you do you and I'll do me was enough. In the negative world, Christians are asked for unyielding allegiance from the secular culture. And if you're not rooted and built up in Christ, the slave raider might carry you away. So what are the possible cultural ideas to which Paul is referring here? Are two potential theories. First, it is possible that there were Christians teaching Jewish legalism. Uh, we see this, for example, in the book of Galatians. For example, Christians in the Colossian church could have been told they need to obey Jewish festivals, and these are your dietary restrictions. Like, you can't eat bacon. Like, who likes that life, right? Second, the phraseology of the elemental spirits of the world refers to basically the principles of the world. He's creating, he's trying to show you this contrast. There are Christian principles, and there's all these other principles that exist outside of Christ. The concern here is that Christianity was synchronizing with the ideas of the culture. To say it more directly, Christians were compromising with the culture. In every generation, there is a temptation for the people of God to compromise. I mean, we just read your Old Testament. What is one of the themes that is woven through the Old Testament? Unfortunately, it's how God's people constantly compromise with their, their surrounding culture. And God's like, no, knock it off. And then we see this again in the New Testament. And we shouldn't be shocked that that temptation continues to exist today, right now. For a moment, stop to consider the ideas of our time that is contrary to Christ and the teachings of Christ. Here, here are a couple of easy ones to kind of sort out. You do not have to look very hard to find someone who even says they're a Christian, but they deny the exclusivity of the gospel. You've heard the old, the old saying, all roads lead to Rome, right? That is not true, according to Jesus. Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life to those, and those who find it are few. That's Matthew 7, 14. In the negative world, Jesus and his followers were, 
honestly, I mean, I've been told this personally by other people, you, Sean Powers, because you believe in an exclusive gospel, you, Sean, are narrow-minded. We believe that the exclusive way to be reconciled to God is faith, that the Son of God died on a cross for sins and he rose from the dead. This is a hard sell. It's like, it's like selling ice at the North Pole. Let's consider this yard sign that currently functions like a creed in our culture. I've seen it so many times. It reads, love is love. Many of you have seen this. Science is real. Black lives matter. Water is life. No human being is illegal. Feminism is for everyone. Kindness is everything. The statements on this yard sign are just semantic overload meaning Christians believe in love. The question is, how are you defining love? Christians are pro-science, right? I've never met a Christian who's anti-science. The question is, how are you interpreting science, right? Guess what? I'm a big fan of water. Having some right now. If your view... If you are not rooted in Christ and the teachings of Christ, this creed and its unspecific meanings, or shall we call it empty deceit, might become your creed. So how about this as a counter creed? I have one for you. Even put it up there for you. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and and earth. All that is seen and unseen is here uses the word visible. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being or co-substantial with the Father. I've only shared a third of this beautiful creed. It is the Nicene Constantinopolian Creed from 381. It's not a bad yard sign if you could fit it all on. <laughs> but this creed helps reinforce the point from Colossians. We have been taught about Christ, and it takes truth. And getting truth that creates deep roots to help us sort out the lies. And if you're in Christ, God empowers you to be devoted to only Christ. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, dude, this is heavy. Um, you're not painting a pleasant picture for Christians, or at least the culture in which Christians live in. Dare I say this is a tad bit depressing, right? If these kinds of thoughts are floating around in your head, I understand. I do. I can even appreciate you having those thoughts. But I think that no matter the attitude toward Christianity from culture, there's always hope. And this is why I told you, you've got to stick with me to the very end. There is hope for you, Christian, because of your union with Christ. Now take a look at verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, 
the whole fullness. Now we got this word whole, and we have fullness. They're trying to convey the same thing, but Paul puts them together to really emphasize the point. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, Christian, you, Christian, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I want you to grasp the the flow of thought from these two verses. First thing, Jesus possesses all of the divine deity. You see that word right there. The, The Greek word deity is not used anywhere else in the Bible, but right here. Jesus is truly God. Number two, you, Christian, possess everything you need because you are in Christ, who is truly God. And number three, you are made whole because you are in Christ. You have been completely filled because you are in Christ. Pastor Sam Storms draws out the connection between verse 8 and verses 9 and 10. He says this, The false teachers tried to convince the Colossians that the fullness they desired was unattainable in Christ alone. That statement still applies for us today. And he continues, Paul responds by reminding them that everything they need to be complete, full, and fulfilled is in Jesus and Jesus alone. We should marvel over the power of the gospel to heal, make whole, and fill what is broken in humanity. The gospel can heal broken marriages. The power of the gospel forgives sins. The power of the gospel can take a person who's been rebelling against God and cause that people to have cause that person to have hope in God. We have every reason to hope. Listen, everything you love about America can burn down. But God's people always have Hope, always. Regardless of how you diagnose our time and moment in America, Christians have every reason to have hope because of Christ. Our hope is magnified when we're reminded that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. It is this last statement that caused Herod to attempt the murder of Christ after he was born. Herod didn't want another ruler. He was threatened. It is this last statement that the negative world hates. The negative world will not stand for Jesus Christ as Lord over all things. The negative world rebels against Christ, his followers, and the teachings of Christ. But as Christians, it is this last statement that we joyfully accept and celebrate. That's why we sing this morning, because we have every reason to hope, because Christ is ruler over all things. He is the ultimate authority. I don't care who the president is. I don't care who the house speaker is. I was up way too late watching that, by the way. It doesn't matter, though. It does not matter. It is the Lordship of Jesus Christ that ultimately rules the day in America, China, Western Europe, Saudi Arabia, and all over the world. 
Yes, friends, I believe we actually live in the most fantastic time as a local church. We have a tremendous privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the broken so that the broken might receive healing, wholeness. Like, I don't, listen, listen to me very carefully. I do not look down on a teenager, this is very common right now, who is struggling with their, quote, identity. I don't look down on that person. I look down, and I got a problem with the person peddling the lies. I got a problem with that person, that influencer. I got a problem with that person. But I don't look down on the person who's like, I've been told this by my friends at school, on TikTok, or whatever else have you. I don't look down on that person. I see a person who can find wholeness by and through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, Christian, have been given the charge by God to tell that kind of person where they can find lasting wholeness. The same is true with the dude who's addicted to porn. A man addicted to porn has been lied to and as a result is deeply broken. I see a person who can find wholeness by and through the grace of the gospel. And you, Christian, have been given the charge by God to tell this person where they can find lasting wholeness. He can show the love of Christ to people who only know the shallow love of this negative world. In this negative world, there is immense darkness. I really believe that. I think it's obvious. Just look around. But we have, listen, we have the light of Christ to brighten up the place. We have it. We've been given to it by Christ himself. The question is, are you ready to engage? Are you prepared to invite others in to experience Christ? Can you begin to look at your coworkers, classmates, and friends as image bearers of God who could be made whole by knowing Christ? I mean, I can continue to prod with questions, but I, but I think you probably get the picture. We exist to be devoted to Christ and Christ alone. We exist to share with others the joy of being devoted to Christ. We do this in this time and place right now as I stand and as you sit in 21st century America, here in Iowa and here in the Des Moines Metro. And all of it is for the glory of God and for the good of his church. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.